Hello, and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today, we're going to have another very interesting show. I have invited on Achit Sapal, Tibetan-born gentleman who lives in the United States, who has had an exceptional life. He'll be speaking to us about that life from being born in Tibet in the uh, probably early 50s, but certainly traversing the Himalayas at the time of the Chinese invasion in 1959. And it's an extraordinary story, which you'll be hearing about shortly. Uh, Achi has since, after having come to the United States, served His Holiness the Dalai Lama, which also happened in India, as well as the, His Holiness the Karmapa in many different types of religious and spiritual activities, setting up a meditation center, and beyond all of that. It's a really interesting, truly blessed and auspicious story. And that's not where it ends at all. He goes on to found the Children of Tibet Foundation Trust, through which he is doing remarkable work in helping children from Tibet get to live lives that are full of education and full of their own culture, as well as having an opportunity to join the modern world and be part of our lives today with all the riches and beauty and auspiciousness so many of us in the West have had a chance to experience over the past many, many years. But best that you hear it from Achi himself, this is truly a historical story, and I'm so glad and honored to bring it to all of you, my audience around the world. So, Achi Tashi Delek, so glad to have you. Here. Mitchell Tashi Delek, thank you so much, Mitchell, for this opportunity. Absolutely. It's truly my pleasure and my honor. So, Please, I gave a little bit of an outline of your background, and it is truly an extraordinary story. Um, I'm actually brought uh, to think about the story of Trungpa Rinpoche that he wrote up in his book, Born in Tibet, where as a youth, he too, like you, was forced to escape from the Chinese who are invading your precious country, the land of snow, and come to a safe haven, which the Indians thankfully offered to the Tibetans and found refuge in Dharamasala. So, and it's that too is an extraordinary story, full of the richness of Tibetan culture, wisdom, and prowess, if you will. So, Tell our audience, if you would, about what that was like to be born in Tibet at that time and make this sojourn into India. 
Thank you, Mitchell. Uh, yes, uh, uh, on the outset, I would like to just uh, uh, clear that uh, I have served uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who is our soul, who's uh, uh, the heart of uh, many of the Tibetan people, but also for the world, a uh, voice for compassion and loving kindness. I have served him all my life in an unofficial capacity. I just want to make that straight with sure. your interaction. Um, I had an opportunity to serve him uh, with uh, Tenzing Tethong, the Dalai Lama's representative then in the mid eighties during his first official visit to Washington DC in an official capacity. Uh, so I don't want the audience to misunderstand. Sure. The, but with the Karmapa, yes, I, the Galwa Karmapa, I call him the great uh, the natural uh, uh, reincarnate, Tibetan uh, reincarnate Lama, whom, uh, as you just mentioned, Chogyam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, he was, the Kamapa was uh, one of his uh, main root gurus. Correct. So I served him for almost seven years. Yes, so I just wanted to set that straight. But uh, yes, uh, uh, 80,000 Tibetans followed uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in 1959, after the uh, the uprising was suppressed, and after over 10 years of um, uh, guerrilla warfare against the communist Chinese invasion, um, we were forced among 80,000 Tibetans who literally kind of, uh, uh, you know, over the Himalayan uh, mountains, uh, went uh, in the direction of India uh, to escape with their lives and uh, blessings uh, to my late parents, uh, particularly my father, who uh, was from uh, Eastern Tibet. Um, and he knew where India uh, was. Um, and it was after three and a half months of amazing, I mean, um, um, three and a half months of hiding during the daytime, going blindly by night. Uh, I'm just thinking about Kabul or something like, you know, now when people are trying to leave yeah. Afghanistan, we talk about the big aeroplanes and everybody being evacuated, but they are, I'm sure, people that are going over the mountains in the night to um, Pakistan. Know, it sounds you like know? a simple matter. Achi, that your father knew where India was, but people have to remember that in Tibet, there weren't the same types of maps or anything about how to traverse the incredibly large mountains of the Himalayas and end up on the other side. It's, you know, I, I in fact, I remember, if you don't mind my referencing, uh, born in Tibet again, because it was a very important book in my own education. Uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, who I think was about 13 or 14 years old, but he was recognized mm -hmm. as uh, Trungpa in that lineage in the Kagyu. He talked about a procedure, a process, a ceremony, a ritual that was Tibetan called Tagpa, if I remember. It was a it was a mm -hmm. prophetic practice to try to um, sense the direction of, in this case, India, that the group of 
you know, monks had to come together and meditate and concentrate and focus through this ritual to navigate through the Himalayas correctly. That's right. That's right. Chukyum Trungpurumbuche, whom I had also the privilege of working with during the Karmapa's first two visits to the West. Really amazing mindfulness meditation, the Eightfold Noble Path, you know, the Four Noble Truths, the first great Lama of Tibet in all his glory, in all his naturalness, like he was like a baby, you know, he was like a child coming to when he was in the zoo, different zoos across America, you know, Disneyland to- Crazy uh, wisdom teacher, right? Crazy yeah. wisdom. Yeah. And it's a unique uh, ceremony, the Vajra Crown ceremony, where we had two, three thousand people. He was the first Tibetan Lama that introduced Tibet, the Tibetan culture, uh, the core message of the Tibetan message of uh, Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. But you, you're absolutely right. Again, you, you I, I know that you have studied with Chogyam Trungpa which is a remarkable uh, human being, a great teacher, because like you just said, he had the knowledge of the practice of Tibetan Buddhism, recognized as a reincarnate, educated, philosophically, he went experiential. To Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and then the flip side, the other wing, which a lot of modern teachers today lack, is he had the other wing to be able to really fly. He went to Oxford. He had like people like you when you were young, about you know, way back in the 70s, he was able to reach out to you to, to transmit the teachings in a plausible way. So uh, yes, I was so blessed to be born in Tibet. Uh, I was about uh, eight, seven and a half, like seven years. I trekked, <laughs> I had no choice, but I really kind of pride myself sometimes with my morning walks and all that. Man, I, I did, I, I walked most of my way, three and a half months. Over the Himalayas. You were seven years old when your family embarked on this journey to escape Tibet? Yes, uh, there's a place called Drigong. I've been back five times to Tibet, and it's a magical, magical, like uh, a, a true, like uh, Shambhala, you know. The Drigong Valley, the, the, the gathering of the yogis, the yoginis, uh, the great Drigong Thiel Monastery, the, the bio ecosystem the rivers, the streams, I drank from those fountain heads in that, you know, in my village. And I remember as a child, you know, the little berries, this famous kind of berries. Donkey and, berries? Yeah, I'm telling you, yep, they're still they there. And then the Melarepa's favorite diet, right? The stinging nettle, the nettle is still there, it's delicious. Oh. And, and then when I went to the they banks of the river, out of I that, bought of horse. Yeah, it brought back, you know, my first time in 99. This is when I was inspired to create the Children of Tibet Trust Foundation. It's kind of a, got it, like, you know, something hit me. Like, I'm so attached to my country, so attached to being Tibetan. I love the Tibetan plateau. I love that, it's an, you know, I think we go to Eastern Tibet, but Central Tibet. What What can I, as a, as a fortunate, blessed by then, I'm you know a happy Tibetan American. What can I do to make a difference? Sure. Uh, you know, for the future. Yeah. So it's like a paradox. It's like 
future and now, right? So that's where the children came into being because children are the future. Absolutely. So we, yeah. Absolutely. But and so, yeah, you just you, mentioned India. We came yeah. to India and then from India. And famous so what, from, just give us a little bit of a feeling, if you would, Achi, of what it was like to be seven years old crossing the Himalayas at that time with your family. I mean, did you have enough food? Did you, were you cold? What was the actual experience day by day and how long did it thank take? You. Yeah, it's a very good question. Many Tibetans uh, starve, starve to death on their journey from different parts of Tibet. You know, Tibet is now like one fourth of what is China today, huge, huge, as you know, geography. Um, so there are many books by different Tibetans, aristocrats to Kampa warriors, Eastern Tibetans, Amdos, Central Tibetans, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, we were so blessed. We had one yak. You know, the, the yak husbandry is the one that truly, uh, we discussed earlier, how the Tibetan civilization prospered and survived for thousands of years. It was the yak husbandry, right? So there's an animal yak. called... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So famous yak, the yak tea. But the there's an animal like a mule, a, a hybrid between a cow and a yak called zo. Most 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 Westerners don't know about this. The yak is so famous, right? Uh -huh. But the zo is like the mule they use to they give a lot of milk. Sometimes they give even more milk than the yak. They uh, they use for plowing, transportation, like the yak. So it was a nalo which is a bald-headed monk, I guess, uh, yak, that really, really made the difference in our escape. Because it carried my baby brother, uh, it carried our provisions, a tent. So 50 families and four monastic groups, we made a blind kind of dash, so-called so -called secret escape. But by the time we were like 14 days going on a journey towards India, we were ambushed. So they were, they were shot at, they were, some lost their lives. Everybody else got caught. The monastic groups got taken back. And my family was the only one. So we are talking about like 150 uh, you know, families altogether. Uh, and we were the only one who escaped. Was it the Chinese and, that ambushed everyone? Oh, yes. Well, uh, they were, it was, of course, the Chinese military. They, they we, uh, like for my example, I, you know, my parents were typical in their 30s, maybe. My mother and uh, maybe my dad has seen my mother, like so many Tibetans, had never even seen electricity. They had never seen an automobile, a car, dog were landlocked, you know, another time and space. So it's, but, you know, you, your life is precious. You you want to live. Uh, and when they heard that the the Dalai Lama had escaped, so they we made this mad dash, and it was this noble animal that took us right to the border. And I remember, even now, when I see like in in pictures or in movies or something, you know, like see those great mountains and range after range, valley after valley, it brings back memories. As a child, it was it's endless, you know um sometimes uh but um yeah it was uh so, first time we got then with got the, to the yak border. carrying your baby brother 
your mother and your father, the four of you forged through when the other 50 families or so and the monastic orders that you were at that time traveling with got through. Were you literally in the same grouping as the Dalai Lama or were you just sort of very far behind his, his group? Oh, we were not even close to the Dalai Lama's group. We were maybe a month behind, whatever. We were completely independent uh, uh, caravan. And how caravan. long did it take, Archie, to go? It to took, us, uh, took us a total about three and a half months. And the secret, uh, maybe it was the star of David, but it was a star that my dad knew that was his point, his compass oh. that took him to India. Yeah, because we... All the passes, you know, to Sikkim, to Bhutan, to Ladakh, to, you know, to Ranachal Pradesh, to Assam, every pass was blocked. The Chinese were saying to the world, well, everything's cool, no problem, you know, the Tibetans are happy, we liberated them, whatever, but there was so much suffering and the, the resistance was there. And even then, I mean, CIA was involved, but that's a whole other story <laughs> to, you know, to help our fight and to bring the Dalai Lama out, uh, but uh, yeah, this, it was the star that my dad knew. And eventually we came down to Ranachal Pradesh, which is a similar route that the Dalai Lama took. And uh, Mitchell, the most interesting thing, uh, most people don't know this, but in these you know, pockets in the Himalayas, there were these indigenous people that were headhunters. Some of them were cannibals in the way back. They looked just like the Amazonian Indians they, they were the one finally who took us to freedom. They were the ones who knew the jungle route. Oh, and I remember this so well. My dad, you know, you know, even then when we were suffering, we hit the, we hit the wall. Not the Great Wall of China, but we hit the wall of the Himalaya. And we looked up to the mountain up there. You can see the Indian flag. I remember that. And we were told after we got over that the troops chased us right up till... Uh, it's a long story, but we don't have time today, but to the border, and uh, uh, it was just ma amazing, like once we just crossed over to the border, I remember the Javan, Javans are the Indian troops with their, like, Nehru kind of hat, you know, the trooper right. uniform, <laughs> and I guess one of the great saving graces, Mitchell, as a child, I was, like, exuberant, you know, I was always, like, inquisitive, right? And here we were begging these troops for bidis. Bidis is the you know Indian cigarette. You know the Indian troop. Uh, you know those things rolled up, look like a little mini cigar. Yes. And um, right. yeah, that people. That was what was yeah. so important. <laughs> yeah, before the Indians, you know, we joked about it because I never forget this. They they had just a loin cloth, and we were told at the border that they they don't you have to, they bribe you have to give them a bribe. First of all, by the time we crossed the Brahmaputra we were much closer to freedom. Then there was the underground network already that were helping people to escape. Very, very, uh, you know, uh, what do you call it, sophisticated. And my dad spoke both uh, the Kampa dialect and he spoke the Central Tibetan dialect. And he was able to connect with the, this, uh, you know, uh, underground uh, thing. And they connected but us to the- Underground the, in India. Uh, no, underground Tibetans in the Tibetan area. Already. I know, but, but we're not in India. But yeah, already 
over the border in India before you? No, 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 no. This is before the this is the crucial point. This is before we cross the border into India. Oh, this is where okay. the critical critical point. They, they connect you to the lowest, you know, the the, the native uh, Himalayan, <laughs> very little clothes on, you know, like a Amazon in Indian. It's but so they say uh, because those same people, those Amazon style Indians in the Himalayas that virtually no Westerner knows about, who you describe as headhunters, could either have taken your head or led you happily to freedom. And thankfully, it was the latter, not the former. <laughs> yes, yes, they're, they're, you're right. They're, 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 they're famous, these, these kind of across the Himalayan and closer to Yunnan and, and towards Arunachal Pradesh, that whole area is the mythical land of Shambhala. Yes, of course. You see the totemic, totemic thing, which is hit from Africa, broke away. It's still hitting, you know, going, you know, pushing the Himalayas up, right? And they have this incredible valleys. And this is where you were talking earlier with Shogyam Rinpoche and all that. Yes, they wanted to open this Shambhala, Shambhala door. And people truly believed in this, where Padmasambhava, you know, Guru Rinpoche's, uh, prophetic and the hidden treasure, to, you know, of the Vajrayana. Yes. Uh, but a lot of people believed in that. They, they really went seriously in search of those two. Of course. Uh, those uh, like, kind of valleys. Uh, you know, was represented valley. in the book uh, by James Hilton, I believe is the name, of uh, Lost Horizon, the land of mm -hmm. Shangri-La. I believe Indeed. That, that whole story was based on the teachings of, or at least the uh, looking for the land of Shambhala, which later, of course, became a secularized form of Tibetan Buddhist practice under, again, Trungpa Rinpoche. And that is actually what was my entry into the world of Tibetan Buddhist practice. It was through Shambhala. Through Shambhala, if you you're were. right, Mitchell, you're right. And the Kala Chakra, you know, the great Kala Chakra, right? Or the, uh, that's the teachings of the Lama exactly with Kala. And uh, yeah, so I never for, remember, we, I remember, never forget this because this yak was like a goat, like a goat. The yak could go on a beam that was across the stream. It could run, it could show, so show for it. So that was a magic. And uh, what an amazing uh, animal, right? An amazing being. Amazing animal. Talk yes. about and service, then finally, right? right? <laughs> Talk about service. We should all be like a I yak. love animal. Yeah. <laughs> so please go ahead. Yeah, um, that's why we never awesome really story. went hungry. <laughs> uh -huh. I know we could just uh, devote a whole chapter on just this thing, but <laughs> but these details are just so precious and important to our viewers and listeners to hear about the real sort of day-to-day -day trials and tribulations, the struggles, and then, you know, finally arriving in glorious India into freedom. Yes, in some ways, truly glorious because you see everything to do with the mind, right? I'm preaching to the choir, Mitchell, you are an advanced student and uh, but the whole message of, uh, and I believe to a large extent, the whole survival of our Tibetan race and uh, our struggle to not be synonized, uh, harnized, to survive uh, as a culture and as a people, I think one of the main uh, 
benefits for us to be able to survive, um, like the Jewish people, like the Jewish folks said, Jewish friends and Jewish, the story of the Jewish people and Israel is so inspiring to us because, you know, for thousands of years, it took them a thousand, you know, a couple of thousand years to go back to Israel. Uh, but the point is, is that there has to be something like the, you know, the Torah or some something deep spiritual. So I think the Tibetan people uh, has a great gift to, to and you are, you are, you are, you are like a, a, a testimony. Uh, you, you are an example of what the, the Tibetan can is doing. And therefore, I truly believe we will survive because the Buddha Dharma, what the Lord Buddha, and you say the, 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 wonder, the wonderful land of India. And for Tibetans, because mind, mentally, India was the promised land, you know, Canaan, you know, the, India was uh, like Jerusalem or, or Bodhga, because Bodhga is there. So, yes, mentally, but physically, I have to confess. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Tibetans, it was hell for a lot of Tibetans. Thousands of Tibetans died in Musumari, Assam, because of the change of uh, climate? The altitude, climate. Altitude. And you didn't even like the food. The food, they have to get used to be a totally different food, different oh, kind really? of culture in some way. Uh, yeah, India, as you know, still even then had many challenges. Uh, and we were poverty stricken I mean it's like people lost everything you know everything they owned so we had aristocrats we had Rockefeller kind of families we had peasants we had farmers we had monks and nuns and from all over the three provinces of Tibet come mainly to to this transit camp and people died of cholera people uh, died even up till the 80s they died of tuberculosis a typhoid you know, so we had those challenges, and uh, but still, did the Indian government, Archie, provide some funding, shelter, food, medical type yes. of facilities? They absolutely funded. Jawaharlal Nehru himself came to Musamari, the Tibetan transit camp, uh, the first prime minister of India. And uh, they did everything in their power to help us. And then uh, after that, uh, in, the, in 1960, we came out of 59, 1960, my parents, a typical example, they had, they had, they had the two hands, the two hands, you know. So they have, they have no profession, no doctors, no engineers, nothing. So they went to north of Dharamsala, a place called Chamba in the Himachal, to work to work on the roads, hard labor, to cut, to, to blow up rocks, to make those highways, making two, you know, at that time, two rupees a day. Um, and then they were sent first Tibetan settlement, again, government of India, and particularly like different states that Nehru was so kind. And he had met the Dalai Lama a couple of times before in 56, you know, 54. So he, requested all the different states of India to help Tibetans to settle them, resettle them. A lot of times it was like a temporary that we will go back. This isn't 1959, 60. So my parents were sent down 
to Karnataka, which is South India, what is used to be called Mysore, near Bangalore, seven hours by cab to Bangalore. Unbelievable, unbelievable settlements. And then I was a typical example. My brother and I, uh, they lined us up. We went Dharamsala, the first you know, Tibetan children's village kids. They landed, lined us up one day, tallest at one end, shortest here, split in the middle. I got sent to Mussoorie and my brother, unfortunately, got sent for adoption to, Swiss, to a Swiss family. Oh. But that's a whole other story. Oh. <laughs> and I met him after, like, thanks to the Kamapa, after 14 years, I traced him down. Then uh, I was so lucky. I was selected to be selected by the Dalai Lama's representative. And I say, it's, of course, Dalai Lama, because he wanted kids to go and have the the best education. And this is coming back to the Children of Tibet Trust Foundation. Yes. I truly, truly believe that the education that I received from the school called Weinberg Allen School, which is in Missouri, started uh, in 1888, oh, um, uh, uh, gave us the finest, finest education. And it is a similar story like uh, Jetun Pema, Temba Tsering, you know, Tenzin Chetong, all these current main leaders of the Tibetan diaspora, Tibetan exile government, they went to these English medium schools, uh, do this, uh, you know, uh, uh, very special schools. Uh, so I. Among many, many, many other Tibetan children to attend the school, is that correct? Absolutely. My first sight of a Western person like you was in 1960, and an Australian, his name is Mr. Kid, blue-eyed, crew-cut, blonde guy, came with a little motorcycle up to our Tibetan <laughs> children's village, and I believe later I heard that, look, I understand your suffering. I want to help, but I can't help, but I will take four kids on scholarship. Now, this is very exclusive schools, very difficult to get in, even with the money, but so, um, yeah, so I was there till 19... Um, uh, 70, and I have now contacts with our Indian brothers and sisters who finished from that, that year. And then after that, four years in college in South India, Christ College. And then I was selected by the Kramaba out of the blue to come to Bhutan for the coronation to oh. be his. Uh, uh, that, that's, yeah, it's just amazing, amazing. I mean, you can imagine an angry young Tibetan trying to feel his way in the universe. Why me? You know, why me? Why did I lose my country? We didn't do anybody any wrong. And they took it from us and, you know, anger and, of course. and, and no passport. We were called stateless. Mitchell, Tibetans, refugees in India are called stateless. Even to this day, Tibetan refugees, when they come, they carry a passport, like a passport, kind of a certificate of identity. On, in their nationality, they say stateless. <laughs> it's sort of like if it's not one thing, it's another. On every single level, they are, you are being disenfranchised by the powers that be, you know. And yet, in the midst of all of this, Achi, uh, His Holiness the Karmapa, and many people in the West don't quite understand his uh, level of uh, position in the larger Tibetan hierarchy, but the Karmapa's lineage mm -hmm. is 
among the utterly most royal, most people know, of course, about His Holiness the Dalai Lama and that lineage, but right beside it, for those who are more educated about this, know that the Karmapa is literally on virtually the same level, so to speak, in the Kagyu. And it's uh, remarkable that, as you were saying, you were selected by someone of that grace, that position, you, over here. Yes. <laughs> you he know, had, it's like I mean, being yeah. selected by St. Peter in heaven or something. <laughs> Absolutely, Mitchell. It's like, you know, you and I believe in uh, transmigration of the original mind, uh, you know, reincarnation, rebirth, right? We believe in law of karma. So it's not, I, I, it's not surprising, but I truly believe it's many lifetimes of good karma merit that I got selected. And also on the material kind of relative level, my mother's from Sumang, same place, you know, the, the generation devotees of, of the Kamapa lineage. Yes. And my father, uh, as I told you from Dege, he's like a Nyingma. Uh, but of course, mainly it average Tibetans, lineage doesn't matter. It, it really, the, the messenger, the, the Lama, Lama, a being who has the supreme love. That's literally the meaning of Lama. So beautiful. Uh, yeah, and it just changed my life. It completely changed my life. Uh, I got this letter, and when I took it to my parents and my elders, they said, Archie, pack up and get the hell out of here. <laughs> you said, your life is transformed. Your, this life and the next few, future life. The next several. Just truly. He said, no, what are you talking about? Hesitation. Get the hell out of here. Like, you know. And three, uh, no, five no, days, four nights. <laughs> yeah, five days, four nights. I've never been to Sikkim, never been to Bhutan, heard of it. Uh, but like, going back to the thing is, yes, the Karmapa the lineage, the Kamakaju, uh, is the oldest kind of, the reincarnation started from the Karmapa, Tosum Kempa, the second Karmapa. So it's over like 900 years old. And uh, where the... Uh, the Dalai Lama kind of lineage sprung from. Mm -hmm. Great, great uh, teacher, of course, the Gilupa founder, Tsongkhapa, but they're like, you know, this is like conversation in the Tibetan kind of, uh, you know, tit for tat, that yes. kind of thing, you know, yes, yes, our lineage yeah. is older and you are only 600 Gilupas, even though you're great and mighty and you have fantastic monks and monasteries, <laughs> you are just like a, like a teenager, you know, you're not no, as pious. still growing up. <laughs> Yeah, and the Nyingma goes, oh, well, what Nyingma? We are just called Nyingma because we're the old, oldest, like the Padmasabha, you know, so they all have kind of things. But you're absolutely right. The Karmapa, I truly call him great, because not because I served him personally and got to know him, but he was a natural, Mitchell. I don't know whether you met him or not, but I he was a natural. I did not. I've been up to okay. Karma Triana in Woodstock, but uh -huh. he had already passed. And uh, but I have. I would say he's he's the last who the, were quite yeah. close to him. So I would say he's like the last of the Mohicans in the sense of being a, a true great Dharmaraja, meaning, uh, you know, a, a Lama that just his crown kind of symbolizes the aspect of being a holder of compassion, and this, uh, you know, that he's a celestial. He's like a celestial deity. People, you know, practice. Uh, but he, why I say he was great is 
he wasn't too lost in philosophies and metaphysics, but he had the natural presence yes. of a great bodhisattva. You could feel the energy. I've seen him change people in a room, you know, and he was comfortable. He was comfortable being the Dharma Raja. Yeah. He didn't have to pretend to be a Dharma Raja. <laughs> yeah. He didn't have he to strive to was. be a Dharma Raja. Yeah, he was. He, he just was. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> On the level so. of being, right? Just like that. And of course, it should be said to those who might not be so deeply familiar with the Tibetan Buddhist traditions and practices, that the Kagyu lineage is the practice lineage. And you're right, it's not so theoretical, it's not so didactic, it's not so metaphysical, it's not so intellectual, whereas the others, Nyingma, etc., are. They have elaborate psychologies. In fact, I often refer to Tibetan Buddhism as Tibetan psychology because it is so advanced as someone in the field of psychology in the United States, Western psychology, I have relied upon Tibetan Buddhist thought and understanding of the nature of perception, uh, etc., the nature of karma, of life, birth, and death uh, in my work for many decades. So it's very rich. The Kagyu, however, is sit, follow your breath, <laughs> stay on the cushion. Yes and walk with mindfulness, you know, and that of course is one of its great, great gifts to the lineage overall. Thank you, uh, Mitchell, you put it much better than I could ever, oh, you know, know interpret it. <laughs> but you're absolutely, absolutely right. Like I said, yeah. right from the get-go, the, the passport for the Tibetan uh, people to survive, I truly, one of the critical thing is the Buddha Dharma. Uh, that will benefit all sentient beings, Very all true. races on this earth. Very and true. particularly, there's a tremendous now interest on the part of the mainland Chinese. Uh, I believe like over like 400 million and growing that are drawn. So if we have good lamas, okay, uh, that will protect our heartbeat, which is the Buddha Dharma, the language and the culture, and it will be relevant the world like you just said like mindfulness and meditation um, uh, in the west uh, how much has happened uh, since the karmapa first came here in 74 and then after this of course skyrocketing like dalai lama's buddha activity to the west like now it's like yoga uh, anarata yoga you're, you're you know like yoga six years no yogas and naropa to basic mindfulness meditation is like a way of life it in is the West. Exactly. And right? there is that book that you probably know, is it called When the Swans Come to the Lake, if I recall correctly. And it's a book about the coming from the land of snow to the West of the Bodhidharma and of uh, the teachings and the way they have taken shape in Europe, Scotland, England, and the United States. Uh, the formation of Karma Choling by Trungpa in northern Vermont, the Rocky Mountain Dharma Center out in the overall Colorado area, and on and on and on. It has just proliferated, including the uh, temples of the Karmapa, Karma Triana up in Woodstock, and 
Well, it just, you know, it goes on and on and many, many different teachers of several lineages have taken root in Europe and the United States, the South of France, on, on and on, you know. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and Plum Village in France, uh, Kalu Rinpoche also in the South of France. You know, it's literally a veritable proliferation. I would love to yes. dive in now that you have told us so well about the transition <laughs> from being seven years old and getting across and the amazing auspiciousness around your family almost like a, a halo bringing you into India. And yet all around you were people dying, which is so sad and so upsetting. And yet you and your family were able to continue to survive. And then from survival, actually thrive. And then, of course, you came to the United States. And as you were saying so beautifully before, Achi, that in your heart, your people and your culture of birth has been so deeply important to you. Maybe now you could tell us a little bit about how that inspired you to start the Children of Tibet Foundation Trust and what you're doing inside of that. Thank you. Thank you, Mitchell. Yes. Uh, like I just said, my first visit back to Tibet was in 99, and uh, I saw this, uh, I went through in this village very close to where Jitsu Milarepa, the most famous yogi, maybe the most f famous personality of Tibet, yeah. Milarepa, sure. uh, where he meditated, there was a, they made it kind of a touristy thing, but on my way to that sacred site, I passed through a village, was very, very typical Tibetan village then, and I passed a couple of students and I mean, children and uh, two, three children and just struck me. Like I said to myself, maybe I looked like one of these young urchins, like <laughs> kids back when I was in Dripum, right? You probably did. Uh, yeah. But this is like being in a Tingri area, southern like uh, Tibet, closer to Nepal. It's more like Afghanistan terrain, mm. more like a desert terrain. Mm -hmm. uh, dusty kind of uh, it has this beauty but the children were like I'm to be I mean, it just broke my heart they they, they just were I, I think there were some schools that the Chinese had built and all that they were you could tell when I spoke to them Tibetan or something they looked at me like I was they were looking at me like okay this guy may be Tibetan or whatever but it's <laughs> like another planet and I could see that I said we're not, we're not going to survive you know, these kids, they can't be, you can't be herding sheep and yaks forever, even if you're lucky to have one. <laughs> so that's where the inspiration came to saying that education, keeping up, adapting, like Mahatma Gandhi said, if you don't adapt, you will fail. So I realized we got to adapt how is education. We have so much emphasis, you know, in exile, diaspora, great monasteries, great universities in India, Nepal, Bhutan, you know, especially India is amazing. But we need doctors, we need engineers, we need secular, first-rate secular. So that, that sort of was my inspiration. And then when I came to my village, 
I met my biological mother and my, you know, sisters, two sisters, a brother. That's a whole other kind of journey, oh a story another time. But it's just an amazing okay. thing. We'll have to have you next on to again, the... Archie. <laughs> this cannot be contained in one yeah. interview. <laughs> yeah. So over there, we went to the little elementary school that the Chinese had started, and they were sort of building it. So we had a little bit of fun, and we had, uh, you know, my friends, Western friends. We, I. Um, the first time I just had one friend and uh, one, two uh, Spanish <laughs> gentlemen. Uh, in 2007, I had a group uh, that went, wanted to go to the school. But in first instance, the school was so poor. They had the sampa, you know, the traditional Tibetan food, sampa, mm -hmm. and they had some like uh, holes in, in the wall. And kids had some, if they're lucky, some lump of butter and the sampa. No blankets, hardly any living space. Uh, no, you know, books like that. So that's how, again, my brother and everybody said, you know, the country, the government is, is doing very well. They're trying to help us, but we need help. And so that's how it started. And uh, uh, this is truly like a, my realization that, again, people say, why Tibet? I mean, I'm nobody. I, mean, I had a full-time job. I'm here, like any other Americans, like trying to move a mountain, right? So, but even then, one drop at a time, they say it can become ocean. So, uh, I realized beautiful in image. my mental suffering and attachment. I know Buddhism. Buddha says, "Don't be at causes of suffering, samsara is attachment." But I'm so attached to being Tibetan and Tibet. So, <laughs> I just said, you know, ninety percent, ninety-nine five percent of Tibetans are good. Is <laughs> okay. uh, they are on the Tibetan plateau? Right, we are only two hundred thousand in exile in the whole world. Just two hundred thousand. A lot of your audience will—they reverse it. They think that most Tibetans are out in as refugees. No. So, what can we do? Give up? You know, we can surrender, give up, and say, okay, we are going to be Sinanized and Hanized, and China is taken over, and blah blah blah. Or do we do something? We do something, not political, not religious, but something on the ground to contribute, you know, add on to, to help my people. So what have you done through the foundation to help these young children in Tibet? What, what are the activities that you have engaged them in? Yes, the exciting uh, things over the years we have done is during the long winter break, which is about three months. Uh, my sister, who's a retired school teacher, at the request of my village folks, there are about eight villages, uh, there are about 2,000 households, uh, without any kind of shaking, uh, you know, political and fear like that. We just tell the story like I'm telling you. I was born here. I'm Tibetan. My name's Achi. Is the deity, the female principal deity of this lineage, the Dugungkayu lineage, and the you know the main seat is there. So I'm here as a happy American, but I want to contribute something. So we've uh, so far they uh, they have not had any problems. So we have like it's a very humble small project. Uh, in some ways, uh, we hold it at at a guest house called the Tibetan Nomad Guest House. Mm -hmm. Long story short, it's a house that I built for my mother but she was living in a tent when I met her, 89. Oh. But it was too big for her. So we converted that into like a guest house for Western friends and Chinese friends and Tibetans. 
Um, and we hold this camp for 50 kids every winter for one month, intensive training, Tibetan language, Mandarin, math, for 50 kids. We get six teachers, pay them well. We pay them well, like, you know, 3,000 yuan for one month. Uh, good diet. We teach them about diet and everything. Uh, so we hire two cooks. Uh, so it has been very successful. Oh. Then we have uh, planted thousands of trees. Uh, we have, uh, you know, about biodiversity, nature, oh, environment. Wonderful. So we peg it to the elementary school and we give one tree to each child to take. We did it like in different areas. It was like, didn't, you know, sustained. All the trees died. But then we discovered you take it, give it a child or two trees, and they take it actually to their home. And they, they, they serve and take care of this living tree and challenge their parents, look, don't let the cow or the yak eat that. <laughs> Go eat that. So that's been great. That's um, another member of then, our family. <laughs> exactly. So then the scholarship is very, very, uh, very, very uh, rewarding because, again, a lot of debate who should be sponsored, this and that. But uh, I do this as like my family kind of you know, through my village and uh, my, my sister selects the, the most intelligent child mm -hmm. who have an opportunity to go to mainland China for further university. So, so sometimes kid is, yeah, kid is brilliant, but he can't afford before the train came and the airplane, now there's plane, but still it costs, there's extra costs. So we give like a $900 a pop, which is not much, but it helps a lot for extra expense oh. for a deserving kid. We don't say the kid has to be poor, poor or rich, rich or the family connection, no. You know, we have X mother budget and that has been fantastic. Um, but it also so shows, if I understand correctly, that there is this increased and steady relationship with the Chinese. Here are your precious Tibetan children and culture, and yet there is some cooperation with the Chinese in advancing your activity. Well, here's the thing, you're right. That's a very good question, Mitchell. Uh, there are some folks, American, you know, big supporters, they say, hey, what are you doing up in Tibet? You're working with the Chinese. You know, you're a traitor kind of thing. You right. know, you're, you're, That's why you know, you're, 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 you're in the wrong direction, right? Correct. And uh, the others, but there's like Sunam Jamaling, my friend in Sweden, he built about 108 schools there. When Hu Jintao was the, you know, the boss in Hassa through the Swedish, and, and this is back in the early 80s. Similar story, but he also believes the same thing. We've got to do something back home. We can't, you know, so like the other, my logic is, when I'm in, I'm able to have this interview with you because of my command of the English language, right? Which now, China is China. Excellent. Everybody now, everybody knows China because of uh, recent news and everything is China, China, Mandarin. Americans are going there to study Mandarin and world is trying to understand and study Chinese. We are, we are like under there. We're in the Tsampa bag, Mitchell. At the end of the day, Dharamsala, Central Tibetan Administration, four or five lineages, Pompo, history, past, present. The fact is, 
as far as I see, we are Tibetan. We messed up ourselves. We 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 forgot to you know why look in the past, right? We we theocracy, all this kind of stuff. We've lost the country. That's a fact. But we have to do something. You have so, to keep the language alive. You have to keep the culture alive. Yeah. You have to keep the music and the art and the belief systems and the and the Buddhist teachings. You are. This is your charge this is your dharma and that's just exactly what it is you and all of your tibetan brothers and sisters and those of us in the west who have an affinity a love affinity and respect for what you do and what the tibetan culture is and what it represents in the world which is very powerful. It sits, as you well know, on the very top of the world. That's one of the phrases used to describe Tibet, the land of snow on top of the world. It's as though you are looking out at all of us and seeking to spread yes. the Dharma, you know, and um, the language needs to change uh, in respect to every culture. It it sifts down to, it drifts down to, that's fine. And there are ways of doing that. Uh, there can't be a rigidity. And that has been learned over the course of many decades as uh, the Buddha Dharma spreads across the planet. And uh, something I learned from Trungpa and the Dalai Lama is the idea is not that all of the rituals and all ceremonies of Tibetan Buddhist religion remain fully intact, but that they adapt to the context, the cultural context in which they're beginning to flourish. So there is a dialogue, if you will, there's a, a bit of a hybridization that occurs. So there's still the purity of the teaching that remains intact because the truth at the end of the day, Achi, is the truth. And if the truth is there, it will continue no matter what the guise, if you will. And so very well. you yes. are very well continuing put. this historic and futuristic uh, lineage and tradition that I think is utterly beautiful. You know, we have run out of time, even though time is timeless. It's crazy. Um, but, uh, I would so enjoy having you back on to go into further depth and detail of the work that you're doing, Achi, with the children and to further elaborate uh, the stories of Tibet for our audience, because it's so instructional and so uplifting, quite honestly, even with all of the suffering and the hardship that you, your family, and so many Tibetans have experienced. At the end of the day, you are not victims. At the end of the day, you are becoming triumphant and you are part of that triumph, if you will, through what you're doing with the, with the Children of Tibet Foundation. And I, I applaud you for this good work and would like to have you on again. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And uh, I'm so uh, thrilled to be, uh, have, uh, you know, to connect with you and uh, to tell, uh, you know, to tell um, our story. Thank you for the, oh, for the opportunity. You're so welcome, my friend. You're so welcome. I 
a true gift to our audience as well. And I also want to take a moment and thank Chris Miser, who uh, introduced us and encouraged our doing this interview. And that's very important. He's uh, a very good man and practitioner and cares deeply about the heart and soul of Tibet as you and I do. So thank you, uh, Mitchell. Exactly. You and Chris are examples of uh, the torchbearers of the message of Tibet and Children of Tibet Trust Foundation. And Chris is like, and he's a, he has much more knowledge and everything than me, but as far as Tibetan and the Children of Tibet Trust, he's, he's going to be soon the custodian as I'm getting older. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Thank you, Mitchell. Thank, thank you so much. Definitely. Thank you sure. for the opportunity. Absolutely. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. I hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. I was thrilled to hear Achi tell us of the stories of his own personal background as they morphed into an amazing evolutionary story that is instructional and beautiful for us all to hear about and how that has then morphed into this good work of the Children of Tibet Foundation, which continues and will continue and continue. So your involvement, your participation, your, your donation, anything and everything, whatever way you feel you may want to participate to keep this beautiful culture alive and thriving uh, is truly most welcome. Thank you again for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you.